yeah, I did not like to talk about that. I did not like to talk about my eating disorders because I, that was actually something that I felt shameful about, which is interesting that I was okay to talk about sexual abuse, but not an eating disorder. Welcome to Backseat Driver, the podcast hosted by two practicing psychotherapists, where we boil down years of experience with clients young and old to teach you how to do the what to do to improve your life and relationships. I'm Mark Yamada, clinical psychologist in Seattle. And I'm Nikki Bennett, licensed clinical social worker in Salt Lake City. I wanted Fiona to be on the show for a few reasons. Fiona, you just have always inspired me. I thought, Fiona, you would inspire our listeners um, just because you've been some, through some really hard things and have just taken life by the horns and not decided you weren't going to be a victim and you've just done great things with your life. So, so Fiona, why don't you just start out by telling us about yourself? Um, tell us about your life growing up, experiences you've had, maybe struggles you've had, and where you're at now. Yeah, I mean... Just, I was born in Washington, grew up, you know, with my family where, um, where did we live? We kind of lived in the ghetto a little bit. Let's be real. <laughs> Just for a small part of my life. <laughs> but, you know, I really felt like I had an awesome childhood. Like my brother and sister and I, we always will get on calls and we're just like, dang, like we really look back on our childhood and we had some really stinking fun memories. Like I loved it. My parents were so fun and adventurous and we were always going on you know camping trips and surfing trips and all that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. but yeah I mean I think just like anybody does you definitely have some struggles I think one of my first big life struggles that I had to deal with was being a victim of sexual abuse from a very close family member and I don't really like to use that word victim because I feel like I've kind of overcame it and I don't want it to still be like a part of I don't want to say it's something I still struggle with because I feel like I've overcame that but my my mom specifically but my parents did I think they did a really good job taking care of me after and really just trying to do the right thing because I think as a parent and having to deal with that it's I couldn't imagine you know I don't even know where my brain would be in that kind of situation so my mom she took me to therapy very very frequently and something that I find very interesting is that even though I was so young it's like my memory is very detailed of that time of my life it's almost like my brain like stamped that as like um, a core memory. Even though it's maybe not specifically a good memory, there's so many things that came with it that I feel like I've, I've been able to use that instance all throughout my life to overcome overthink other things, if that makes sense. And That's incredible. I, I actually just read something yesterday about, you know, how victims oftentimes will suppress memories because their psyche just can't handle it. And I think that's mm-hmm. so powerful that you've used that throughout your life to overcome different challenges that come up. It's incredible. Yeah. And it, it definitely took me a long time, I think, to kind of really sit down and understand what had happened. It's not like at two or three years, you really understand, you know, why something was wrong or why something was right. But even going back, I think my parents did a really good job of raising us 
in an atmosphere where at two or three years old, I did know that that was wrong. And I did speak up because I think even with what's going on all around the world with this sex and child trafficking, you know, you're learning so much about it. And it's like these poor, precious children just don't really know that it's wrong for so long in their life. And it just becomes like, it just comes like a part of them and they just deal with it for years and years and years. And it really does break my heart that that's even a thing. It's, it's so, it's so cool. When it starts out so young, you don't really know any better, like you were saying. What, what are some things that you recall that even from a young age helped you to realize, you know, maybe this isn't the right thing. Maybe there's something wrong here. Maybe I should try to say something about this because, you know, young children may not even realize that that mm-hmm. there is that there is something wrong and that there's something they could or should do about that. How, how did you come to realize there's something off here? Mm-hmm. I think when I really sit down and think about it, I feel like it's it's probably just that the presence was so off. I don't know if I'd use the word off or evil, but I just think the way that it made me feel um, was not at all comfortable. Like maybe I'd never been touched that way or whatever it had been. And I think that it probably made me feel uncomfortable. And I don't know what my parents had taught me, you know, from that far into my life. But I just remember just feeling like very little, but also just uncomfortable you know what I mean like I just knew that something wasn't maybe right yeah Fiona I remember that time vividly your mom has always she's more like a sister so I've known your mom since we were in the womb together and (laughs) still close to this day and we're both turning 47 in a few weeks here but one thing I've learned from your mom in parenting and as a therapist is to have conversations with my kids, to not have shame around talking about sexuality. And your mom was always really good about that, about using the proper terms. In Mm -hmm. my family, sex was really shameful. It was something scary and gross to talk about, something you say for Mm -hmm. someone you really love, which I think most families are that way. But your mom was really good about using correct anatomical words. And I remember vividly the phone call. I think I was maybe the first person your mom had talked to outside of the police and your dad Mm -hmm. when she called me and told me what had happened and described the conversation that you were sitting at the counter eating cereal and you said, mommy, and you just matter of factly stated what happened. Mm -hmm. And your mom stayed totally calm and said, really, tell me more. Yeah. I thought that was so fantastic. Incredible. Cause I was freaked. Yeah. It's, it's definitely, and the, the thing that's, and it's something that will still pop up into my mind, I think, because now, like within these last few years, I'm very open to talk about it. I don't feel shameful and I don't feel embarrassed to talk about it, but it really does like sometimes break my heart that even my mom had to go through that because she lost all of her family almost, you know, she, Mm -hmm. and it really broke the family apart. In, in so many different ways and again I'm not not at all it was not at all my fault but it it almost was just like wow I just it hurt me that my mom just growing up and seeing that my mom lost her family over that like that's even hard in itself just to know oh my that gosh yeah else that she loved and she grew up with and then that is often so difficult for the person in your mom's position and that's often a reason why 
uh, abuse is often kept quiet and hidden because there's this fear that, oh my gosh, it will destroy the entire family. And in mm -hmm. this case, it's true, it did. Yeah. And this is where, you know, a parent or a child or anybody who brings this forward often becomes ostracized. And it's a second type of abuse or loss is that you lose the social connection to the family in this mm -hmm. case, because it happened within the extended family, and it may for never come back. That is often a very scary thing. And you watched your mom go through that. And it, does it still affect her today? I can even answer that one. Because I remember, too, your mom, I remember being at her house and her talking about the fact that she and your dad had had him over and had a conversation with him, and he admitted it tearfully. And your mom ended up calling the police and they came over and investigated. And I remember her just tearfully saying, I don't want him to go to jail. I just want him to get help. He's just the most compassionate, loving, you know, heartfelt response that you could give to somebody who has hurt your child. Mm -hmm. And that's when then I think the other family kind of got involved and started questioning more did this really happen could it have been a misunderstanding and of yeah. course people quickly glommed onto that right and so your mom I've just seen over the last 20 years just pushed and pulled and wanting to have a relationship with family but not being willing to do so until people were healthy and willing to admit the truth and get help and I'm not sure that's ever really happened I don't think so much either um especially now I mean I just got a text a few days ago from her talking about how her mom is actually going into hospice now because her her cancer came back and it's all over her front and the back of her lungs it's on her liver and i think since the death of her dad which was two years ago i think just ever since then her mom's health has just really 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 depleted and when i was talking to my mom about it i was asking her you know how does that how do you feel about that because for me, it's different. I, I don't really have a relationship or connection with her, even though um, I'm kind of jumping around here. But for when I had gotten married, we took some family pictures and I had sent one to my mom's mom. And she sent me back this letter, just how grateful she was that I reached out and how she loves me so much and all these kind of things. But I definitely think that it's hard on my mom knowing that you know, soon now both of her parents are going to be on and she's just never really had a relationship with them since, since however many years ago, 17 years ago or so. So I, I definitely think that it's, it kind of reopening some wounds. You know, my mom's watching her mom now die and she's like, well, I haven't talked to her in so long or, you know, whatever. So I, I definitely think that it's still, I don't know if I'd say burden, but it's still, it's still a little bit hurtful for my mom, for sure. And Mark, I have a question for you. So Fiona's mom, I, I feel like I knew the family quite well. We had sleepovers all the time and mm -hmm. it seemed like they had a really healthy family. You know, dad was the bishop. He was the fun dad. He was, that was the house I wanted to be at. And so I think for her, having lived this not charmed childhood, but, you know, certainly feeling closer to her dad growing up than her mom. Is that typical for somebody to go that many years and then in their 60s just take a wrong turn? Or do you think there was stuff going on all along maybe? Yeah, I had that same question too because I was like, well, if this was an ongoing struggle that he had. Oftentimes when you know, it comes up or abuse is identified by somebody 
who is later in life, in this case, I think uh, he was somewhere in his 60s is what I understand from what you were saying. When that happens, that's usually for most people, that is not a brand new thing when it pops up that late in life. And 60, mm -hmm. although it's not necessarily super late in life, but it, it is well into, you know, middle adulthood. And it's often when it first gets caught or first becomes manifest where somebody notices and says something. So these things often have been building over years. You know, some people may have that as a first time thing, but a lot of times what happens is that there are underlying unresolved issues that play into mm -hmm. this. And oftentimes, there's this contradiction because on the surface, a person may have a very solid social appearance and may be prominent in their communities, but they do have this underlying hidden private side to them, which in this case, uh, you know, sadly came up. And you know, the, the, the reason oftentimes the things that underlie it are insecurities and even if it looks like there is solidness to most people looking in from the outside, a person who tends to abuse and especially abuse younger people, in this case, children, then there's a deep insecurity in their own psychology, in their own personalities. And they're looking for some type of emotionally intimate connection. That's typically what it comes down to, is they're looking for that connection. However, they're not able to do it very well with an age peer, in this case with another adult, for whatever reason. And so there's this gravitation towards children. And it's a type of playing out of a fantasy, because the reality is, you know, when you have somebody that has this 50, you know, 55, 60 year age gap, of course it's unrealistic that there could be any type of intimate, emotional, physical relationship that would be mutually appropriate or satisfying. So oftentimes the abuse is actually secondary to what's underlying and driving it. However, the abuse itself on the surface is completely not okay, but it's coincidental to what a person is usually trying to do. In other words, there's no, you know, I haven't talked to him, but my, my general sense of it would be from, you know, the other folks that I work with that have gone through this is the intent to hurt or abuse is not on his radar. It is what ends up happening as he's trying to do other things with this uh, sexual abuse as a way to do that. That's a hard thing sometimes to put together because the outward damage that is caused is tremendous. And Fiona, you know what that is like. You've walked that path and you've also walked and watched your mother and family go through that path as well. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really interesting to kind of dive into the psychology part of it because 
it's just really interesting, I feel like, to me to, to understand maybe why somebody did something that isn't normal or isn't alike maybe other people. Um, so I, I do find that actually very interesting because it, like you were saying, maybe their intent wasn't to hurt, but they're, it's almost like they're emotionally seeking after something else or, you know, I don't know. It's, it yes, isn't... yes. Mm -hmm. and, and then abuse happens as a side effect mm -hmm. of this pursuit, which again is never okay. But you bring up a very important point to help other people through this path, and perhaps you can say more about this, Fiona, is that, you know, as you have gained more knowledge in the psychology that underlies this, how has that been helpful for you in working through the healing process, this ability to understand what and why somebody might be doing something? For me, it took a lot of time to really, it, it's interesting because I feel like at some times I would f not forget about it, but I'd kind of push it to the back of like my head. And then other days it would just be, it'd be very present. The, the memory would be very present to me. And for a long time, I had really struggled with speaking about the way that I feel or the emotions that I'm feeling one day. It's kind of like I always put on a face or I a facade I kind of only was just showing one emotion I was always happy and then even when I was angry I would I would act like I was happy or I was sad I would act like I was happy and then a couple of weeks or a couple of months of that would go on and then I'd kind of have like a breakout you know and this is even going through like puberty and everything your hormones are going crazy and but for years and years and years that would that had happened to me and I remember many times you know, friends or even other close adults would be like, it's okay to talk about your feelings and whatever. I never really understood why it was so hard for me to talk about my feelings. And then when I was around like 15 or 16, I think I had started sharing with people what had happened to me because at that point, I had moved from Washington to Hawaii and I was surrounded by so many new people who had no idea about my past and I had started opening up about it and then I almost felt like it was a weight that had just been released off my shoulders and when I had finally been able to talk about it it was almost like I was free to show all my emotions again like if I was upset I could let somebody know that I was upset or if I was angry about something, I could tell somebody oh, I'm angry because this happened. And before I was never able to do that. And, and I don't know if that was because I had held in what had happened to me when I was younger, but I almost felt like when I was able to talk about it and just be open about it, then I was able to start sharing my emotions more. And that didn't really answer your question fully, but... <laughs> But I definitely had noticed that that had happened to me. And I mean, then I had started becoming a little more curious on, on that kind of stuff. Like, well, why does somebody do this? And yeah, you know, and that's, yeah. And that's kind of the thing that often is a natural healing process, which your experience highlights so well, is that initially, you know, a person who's been abused tends to hold things in because it's shameful or there's tremendous guilt 
And there's a lot of fear and worry about a couple things. One is the fear and worry about what will other people think of me? Will they look at me weird or negative or will they judge me? And mm-hmm. the second is protecting other victims or people who've been hurt. In this case, particularly your parents, your mom, mm-hmm. that you know, that the more you talk about it, it you know, you could end up worrying that it's going to further affect your mom in negative ways. And so there's a natural tendency to hold things in as a way to protect. That's generally the reason to do that. What you have come to find, though, that expressing your feelings, once you overcome that fear, it also does a couple things. One is just the expression gets this pressure out of yourself from just containing and holding it in. So this release of this pent up, bottled up pressure, these feelings come out. The second thing that happens with it is after those feelings come out, you kind of sort through it and you start to make more sense of things, kind of like Fiona, kind of like connecting dots. And I think that kind of experience, I think you're going to nod your head and say, yeah, 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 yeah. That the connecting the dots as you start talking about it, I think is connecting back to what you were saying earlier about this interest in the psychology of it, that there's a curious thing that happens that when we actually talk out loud, especially with other people, we actually start to make sense of how these pieces fit together. And as you do that, as you start to make sense of things, it actually shifts the attention more to understanding Mm -hmm. rather than viewing yourself as broken or forever damaged. Mm -hmm. Is that the experience that you went through as, as, does that fit for you? I, you know, I think it does. And, you know, I think this happens to a lot of people, but I definitely notice like, you know, as more years go on and the older that I get, it's, I really kind of start to look back and I, and I do start noticing, like I, I'll start connecting the dots to things and I'm like, Oh, or, or maybe because of one experience that led me to do, or that led me to something else. And because of that, now it led me to something else. And now that's how I got here today. You know, when I did start talking about it, I had started noticing like, Oh my gosh, there's so many other people who are also a victim of this and who maybe would hold it in and haven't really told anybody yet, but felt almost safe enough because they knew somebody. Realizing that they're not alone. Yeah. And that's when I had realized, oh my gosh, like this is actually something that happens really often. It almost does seem like a shameful topic to talk about, but it's like a really big issue. People should be talking more about it. Hey, Mark, isn't the statistic like one in four girls, one in six boys? What we're finding is that as our society is evolving to be less ashamed to speak up about these kinds of things, we're finding that the prevalence is much higher than we once thought. That's crazy. The thing we can do about it, though, the cool thing is, is what Fiona's doing, is that she's working through it and she's not viewing herself in a shameful way and therefore by speaking up as an individual and then as we're even discussing this and sharing this message with others the more people become aware and the more people become aware that they don't need to hide or be shamed about this can create a change 
And so in some ways, Fiona, you're, you're like an agent of change with this message of yours that you already have had some experiences as you've talked with other people that they have been helped just by knowing that they weren't the only ones and that there's something they can actually do about it. Really, the big message is let's not keep this hidden as shameful. Let's bring it out as an ailment that as the more we make it a discussable subject, the more people understand what and why it happens, the more we can do something in a preventative healing way. That I think is really a cool thing that you're you're helping to do, Fiona. Thank you. I definitely feel like you do need that support system, regardless if it happened at any point in your life. It's like you need, I feel like it's very comforting to know that you have other support from somebody else who's gone through it. Because sometimes you're talking to somebody about an issue that you faced and they're trying their best, but it's kind of like they have no idea what you're going through or, or so. I, I think it's nice to be able to have that support system from somebody else who's like, I went through the same thing. But you know, everyone's experience differs um, a little bit. Some people, it's, it was a one-time thing or some people it's been ongoing for years and years and years, you know? And Absolutely. The social support from others is so helpful. Sometimes it's really needed for some professional help. And mm-hmm. what are some things that you have gained in therapy? You know, it's funny because I think about that sometimes. I kind of laugh about it because I think that's when I started kind of keeping that facade is I remember going to therapy with my mom and we'd go and she would, the therapist, I can't remember her name at this point, but she would give me a chart and it would have these little faces with the emotion next to it. And I remember every day that I went in, I would just be like happy, happy, happy. Like that's how I'm so little. Mm. They're trying to understand what's going on. And I just remember kind of feeling like shy or like I didn't want to talk about my feelings at that point. I don't know if it's because I didn't know this lady or I think it is really nice for people to have that professional help because, you know, they almost know how to coach you through your feelings, if that makes sense. For somebody like me who had no idea how to express anything, they're able to almost push you through your emotions in a comforting way. It's not like you need to tell me or something bad's going to happen. You know, it's it, they're there regardless if every day you go in and you just sit there and you don't even say anything. And I think for people who really have nobody else, I obviously had a lot of help and support personally, but for people who have nobody, I think that getting professional help is could quite literally be a lifesaver for some people because some people just need just that one person to help them or just to... T- I think it's so interesting too to notice that even though in the beginning, it did seem like you were happy and doing well, your mom mm-hmm. persisted with the therapy and it helped you process through it. And you've done some incredible things in your life, Fiona. I'd love for you to share with our listeners, life has unfolded to where you are today. I love where I'm at today. I feel like it's such a fun place. We had such a fun childhood and, you know, all throughout that time, my parents, you know, like I'd mentioned before, just very adventurous people. So we were always out doing something or then fast forward years later to when my parents had got a divorce. I I remember actually this day very vividly. It's another one of those memories that I'm just like, oh, I remember it so well. I was at one of my best friend's house. At that point, I had practically lived with her. You know, it's you that best friend and you're just with them 24 seven. And I was at her house and I was, I remember telling my mom, like I needed her to pick me up that day at whatever time. 
and that time came around and I was persistently calling her and I just kept catching her um, voicemail. And so I was like, oh my gosh, what the heck? So I had called my dad and he was like, oh, uh, your mom went on a camping trip with her friends pretty spontaneously. So I'm going to pick you up. And I was like, okay, that's a little weird. Like, why would she do that? But whatever. I wasn't really thinking much of it. And then a couple hours later, my dad came to pick me up and didn't really seem anything out of the ordinary. If anything, maybe he was just being like really nice to me, (laughs) you know, trying to keep me comforted. But um, when we had gotten home, I just remember their bedroom was right next to mine. And as I was walking into my room and their door was open, I was like, what the heck? A bunch of the stuff was gone. And I'm like, so if she's on a camping trip, why would she be bringing her drawers and boxes and whatever else? I was kind of confused. I didn't really know what was going on. And then my brother had gotten home just very shortly after. My dad had sat us down and he was like, your mom left. I'm trying to figure out what's going on. I think my brother and I were both definitely in shock because my older sister had moved out already because she's a few years older than us. And my brother just took off to the skate park. He was super angry. And then I just slammed my door and I was like, what the heck is going on? And um, it was definitely a very interesting time because I remember when I was younger, I feel like that was the time when divorce rates almost started going up. And I had noticed like, wow, my friend, they have to go to two separate homes for the week and the weekend. And I had never had to deal with that because my parents always seemed like they were in such like a good, solid marriage. And when I was younger, I- So in love. Yeah. And I would always make them promise me, like, promise me you're never going to get a divorce because it seems so horrible. Like as a child and you're looking at all your friends and it's like, you know, their families are all broken apart and you're like, oh, well, I'm lucky, you know, <laughs> my parents are still together. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was a very interesting time, I think, for not just our family specifically, but it caught so many people off guard. Nobody at all expected that to happen. And I was one of them. <laughs> yeah, it was just such a confusing time. And I remember telling people or when my dad was telling people like, oh, we're going through a divorce, people would laugh and they're like, oh, because my dad's such a jokester. They would start laughing at him. Oh, ha, that's funny. So like, when is she going to get here? And he's like, no, I'm being serious. And it was, it was really like that. And that had happened for a while. And something that's interesting was my dad was just trying to figure out what was going on. He didn't really know. I don't even think my mom knew what she was doing, if we're being honest. She seemed very lost and confused in her own way. But my dad had sent us to go on a trip with our friends. Our One of my brother's good friends, his family was going to Hawaii. And I basically just tagged along because he needed to go and figure out what to do. I just remember my mom was trying to get a hold of me on that trip. And I just was so angry at her. I despised my mom. I would tell her that I hated her and I just ignored her for the longest time. It took me a really long time to even talk to her. And then when I did start talking to her, I used her for money. I used her for rides and that was it. I totally just used her in any way that I can that would benefit me. But I was so hurt still because I I didn't 
fully understand why she would have left in the first place. There was no warning or there was no, oh, I'm, I'm thinking about leaving because of this and this and this. It was just one day she's there and then the next day she wasn't. Did she ever explain to you? It took a while for me to actually give her the chance to tell me why, because I almost didn't even want to hear it. Because it's like you see your family and it all looks so happy. Like there's no reason that you'd want to leave. I did eventually give her some time to explain to me what happened. But even to this day, I feel like there are a lot of missing puzzle pieces to the story or things that almost just don't really make sense. But I definitely dealt with it in my own way. I, I was very separated from anything else. Like my brother was doing something completely different than I was doing. We were all just living so separately, even though we lived in the house. I was so young. I'm like 14 or 15. And I had started going to parties and I had started smoking a lot of weed and drinking. I didn't even really know what else to do at that point. I don't want to blame it on my parents' divorce because I was the one who decided to make those decisions and go to parties. And But I definitely think it almost was very appealing to me because there was no more family values. We didn't go to church anymore. And it was also inviting to be like, oh, we're going to these parties. It's like that numbing feel. It's almost like you're able to feel a different way because you're on or you're drunk or you're high. Or We all have something we, we do to numb our pain. And it took me a long time to realize. I started to realize I was filling myself up with things that were so temporary to mask that temporary pain or anger or just being confused at that time that it never satisfied me enough to like I, like I just had to keep doing it because I was never fully satisfied or I just never really wanted to what was actually going on. Yeah and I remember actually a phone call from your dad when I was in graduate school him saying hey I have this opportunity to move to Hawaii I'm mm -hmm. really worried about Fiona what should I do? She doesn't want to come. And I remember saying, you have to make her go. Tell us about that, because I know that that is not something you were happy about. And you probably didn't know I was partly responsible for it. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. I, I look back on it and I still apologize to my dad. I'm like, I'm so sorry I acted that way. I think yes. you're pretty normal given the circumstances. I was so angry seeing my dad kept going to Hawaii and he would just leave us behind. And I'm like, you're out here going out and having a good time and we just got to stay home and this cold, rainy Washington. I did not want to move there. I thought that everything was in Washington. I thought that my life was there. My friends were there. I just remember, I was so angry at my dad. How could we just pick up and move? And he had started seeing somebody at this time and I was so angry at him and I fought him so hard so hard and thank goodness that I went because it changed my life I'm so grateful you know we had a little going away party and next day we're out we're on the plane we're going it was it was a little it was exciting I was like oh I miss my friends already you know whatever they weren't even really good friends but <laughs> um when we had gotten there it was like a whole new life was just waiting there for me I remember starting school. I, I just remember people looking at me kind of funky because in Hawaii, it's like, you know, everything's so bright and happy. And here's this girl walking in, this new girl, and she's got like black hair. And people are like, what the heck? 
And I remember my first day, I was so nervous starting at a new school. And my very last class was PE. And these two girls came up to me. They were like super cute. They came up to me and they started talking to me and they're very friendly. And those were like my first friends that I had made at that new school. I had started noticing I was actually really happy there compared to how I was in Washington. I was always like masking the way that I felt. I really genuinely felt happy while I was living there. I had started surfing and hiking a ton and getting into like fitness and really just kind of trying to become healthy, which had also come with my own set of struggles. You're surrounded by so many tall and skinny people. Here I am and I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm like five, one or five, two, but I'm like very muscle dense. I was just like, oh my gosh, like I just want to be like that. That was like my new next struggle. So I went from one thing to another. I definitely had struggled with some body image issues for a long time. I had struggled with some um, eating disorders because I, I wanted to like morph my body into being like everybody else's that I had seen around. It's really interesting because it's almost like everything that I've dealt with when I actually am like healthy and I'm, you always find people that have also struggled with very similar things. Some things go hand in hand. I feel like you don't just have one struggle in your life. It's always like one thing to another and they all kind of go together. Mm -hmm. It like makes sense that you would struggle with something else. The funny thing is that everybody thought that I was so healthy because I worked out all the time and always try and eat healthier things, but it's like they had no idea. I was so obsessive with obtaining a certain goal that I would put off other things just to get a workout in or just to go and run or like whatever it may have been. It's kind of crazy looking back on it. People had no idea. And I think you always are looking at somebody and you're like, oh, they seem so healthy or whatever. But it's like you have no idea mentally where they are because it almost becomes I had to do my workout before I could do anything else. Then when I had realized that, I was like, okay, this is not healthy. I can't even give myself a break for one day and just to go hang out with my friends because it's like I, I having to obtain this goal. That was another thing that took me a really long time to get over because it's not something that you can just set your mind on and, the, and then wake up and be like, okay, like I'm just not going to do it anymore because you're so set on this routine and you're so strict on yourself. And there's other things that come with coming off of an eating disorder or whatever. Maybe it's gaining weight or you have to then get used to the way that your body looks then. How did you get to the point where you recognized it was a problem and then you started working through it in a healthy manner? Did you have therapy? Because oftentimes with an eating disorder, I find so many people struggle even when they don't know it. So this was actually really hard for me because this was something that I did feel shameful about and I had no help and I, I had to get over it like myself. And there was only one time I think I had talked about it because when I had tried to stop um, being so like restrictive on myself, then I had started waking up in the middle of the night and binge eating unknowingly. I had thought that it was probably a, a side effect of being so restrictive during the day that my body literally mm -hmm. woke up in the dead of night and just started eating things. And then I'd go back to bed and I wouldn't know until I woke up. And I'm like, why am I holding this bag of chips? Actually really scary for me because 
I didn't know what was going on and it was so uncontrollable. I didn't know what to do, but I was embarrassed to ask anybody or to tell anybody because I just didn't want to talk about it. I think that there was one time that I had asked my dad, can you please put like a lock on the fridge or something? Because I keep waking up and like eating and I don't even realize that I'm doing it. But I don't think that it was really taken that seriously, as serious as I was trying to go about it and I think there was like a little mm -hmm. velcro strip that was put there but how, what's that gonna do <laughs> you know I don't know if it took a couple years or just a couple months it felt like forever I just had to like slowly work through it myself and I don't even know how I did I I just tried to be really conscious about everything that I was doing and like if I did wake up and I had realized that I had woken up I would be like oh you don't need anything or I'd put like a glass of water by my bed in case you know in case it was like I just needed to like do something I could just drink that water I wasn't even religious at that time and I would just pray to God that he could help me get through it but it took a long time because maybe I'd do I, it'd be like a week that I didn't do that and then the next couple of days it would be constant every single day so I imagine part of it was eating more conscientiously during the day and making sure you're feeding your body and getting the nutrients you need. Exactly. And it's pretty incredible that at such a young age, you figured that out. But I think you had so much counseling and intervention throughout your life that you were able to take those tools and mm -hmm. apply them here, which is pretty incredible. Yeah, I did not like to talk about that. I did not like to talk about my eating disorders because I that was actually something that I felt shameful about, which is interesting that I was okay to talk about sexual abuse but not an eating disorder. It almost doesn't seem the severity doesn't seem as crazy, but they're both very very serious things that you would have to deal with. Once I had been able to kind of come off of that, here was the next thing. It's been however many years, four years or so. Then my dad is like, hey, I'm moving back to Washington. We all got to go. You're coming back with me. And you're like 17 at this time, Fiona? Yeah. And I was so happy. I was so content with my life there. Um, I had such great friends. I, I was living such a good lifestyle at that point. My life was just completely flipped around. Then that was my next thing. And my dad was like, we're going. But this time I fought him so hard. I was just like, no, I'm not going to go. I don't care what I have to do, but I'm not going to go. I was so set on not leaving. I just had such an overwhelmingly strong feeling that there was still something left for me there. It was almost like I had mm -hmm. one more goal that I had to achieve. And then it'd be like, okay, now it's fine if I were to leave after. So I had found a family that basically welcomed me in. I guess they had fostered people before. I think my dad met them once for like 30 minutes. And he was like, yeah, okay. Wow. <laughs> it was, I was helping my dad move out the rest of his stuff. I had some friends come and pick me up and they're like, we're going to this youth group that the pastor was teaching at. Surely enough, that's where I met Zay, who's now my husband. He had came up to me, and the first thing that he said was like, hi, I'm Shrek. And I'm like, oh, you're so funny. That's <laughs> <laughs> <I'm> stupid. <laughs> Shrek and Fiona. <laughs> Literally been together ever since. For two and a half years, he came and visited me like every two months, and then he would stay for a couple of wow. weeks, and then he would go back and and make some more money and then he'd come back out and he did that for two and a half years you know we're just we're just kids we're still just kids but um 
yeah, it was, it was, it's such a blessing. And I'm really grateful that um, I had, I don't know whether it's intuition or not, but that I had followed that feeling that there's one more thing that I had to do in my time there. Because if I didn't, then I don't even know, I obviously wouldn't be here right now, you know, and we wouldn't even be having this conversation. There's so many amazing things that had happened within that time. I had started going back to church when I had graduated you know, life, it's so good now. You still have your daily struggles, but just where I've ended up in my life, I'm so eternally grateful for it. And I really do think that reconnecting with God and just having my own personal connection with Him, and I think that it's so important. And Zeta is such a, a good husband for me because, you know, he's very understanding and we both like to be a little rebellious and maybe not like to follow things to a T. And I know that there's going to be so many more life struggles and there's going to be so many other things that I'm going to have to deal with. But I've really just come to a realization in my life that trials are hard while you're going through them. But I'm so grateful for them because if I hadn't gone through anything that I had gone through, I would not at all be who I am. I wouldn't be able to connect with as many people as I can, or I wouldn't be able to help other people or, you know, regardless of what it is, but I'm so grateful. It's really just made me who I am. You're so incredibly tenacious and wise at such a young age and determined and loving and open and wise again. What would you you say to the three-year-old Fiona or the 14-year-old Fiona or the 17-year-old Fiona? What would you say to her? Trials just make you a a beautiful person. And I would tell myself that it always gets better. When I was struggling with my eating disorders and stuff, I would definitely want to tell myself that I'm worthy and I'm beautiful and that I am loved. You know, you'll learn to love yourself through, you know, all of even through all your flaws, because there's still days where maybe you'll go and look at yourself in the mirror and you're like, uh, you know, why do I look like this or whatever? You still have those days. I would definitely just want to reassure myself that there's so many good things in life and it's always, it's always going to end up okay. It's all going to be okay, regardless of what you go through. That you're much more resilient than we ever worry that we might be. You know, I'm just inspired, Fiona, by you know, your story, uh, your life experiences of just a powerful message of resilience, of, you know, never giving up and realizing that we're not responsible for the circumstances or the things that happen to us, especially when we're younger. Your message is one of realizing as you grow older, we can be 100% responsible for what we do about our lives, build the resilience and become whatever you want to become. You can really do that. I agree. And when I think about you, you just radiate joy. And it's just such a good part of my day. Every time I see a Fiona post come up, how would people find you? Oh, thank you. I'm mainly on Instagram. It's Fiona Solis, but it's two I's. So it's F-I-I-O-N-A-S-O-L-I-S. But I'm mainly on Instagram. I'm I'm kind of bad at using other platforms, but um, Instagram's my favorite. I feel like it's never going to die out. It's always fun to be on there <laughs> and to share whatever. Yeah. You're the poster girl of resilience. <laughs> thank you. I really do appreciate it. Thanks, Fiona. 
And that's it for another Backseat Driver. If you found this podcast helpful, please share it with a friend. We'd really appreciate it if you'd take a minute to rate and review our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.